from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. You have your Bibles. You probably think you know where we're going, but we're actually going back to John 2. And as we turn back to John 2, no, we are not starting over. But we are going to start in John 2, and then we are going to turn immediately to John 12. Last week, a debate was reignited that has grown more public in the past uh, few years. It is the continual debate of daylight savings time versus standard time. It's just every two years, or every twice, or twice a year, we get to argue about that. And I think no greater example of the ego of man, I guess I should put it, uh, has been on display then for a couple years ago when Congress proposed, and I think the House and the Senate passed, I'm not really sure, the Sunshine Protection Act. And I just, I just have to wonder, what kind of ego do you have to have to think that you can protect the sunshine? I mean, I mean, I know they 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 try to make these really neat you know names or these really odd names that that's an, an acrostic so you can say what it means. I understand, but the Sunshine Protection Act, because for thousands of years the sun has been unprotected, but we are here now to protect it, you know. <laughs> and the whole point of the act is to make daylight savings time permanent. Now, for the record, I prefer standard time. If we're going to make one permanent, I'd rather just be standard time because I guarantee you the moment we make daylight savings time permanent and the sun comes up at 8.30 or 8.40 in the middle of the winter, people are going to be yelling, why is the sun coming up so late? I thought you protected the sunshine. You know, and they're going to find out no. But in, in, in that debate, what we see is the difference that an hour can make. Just, just one hour can make an incredible difference. When we come to John 12, there is a seismic shift that occurs in his gospel. And it is easy to miss because it all hinges on one little word. So John chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, and then immediately to John 12, verse 20. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to, them, said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. John 12, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. I hope this morning, and through the hint from Wednesday night, where I challenged you to prepare for this morning, and for hopefully reading the study guide and looking at the Facebook post that you picked up that the key word between John 1, or excuse me, John 2 and John 12 is the word hour. And that there is a seismic shift that occurs. Because beginning in John 2, where Jesus introduces his hour, the hour is always in the future. Everything is building up to the hour. In John chapter 12, when the Greeks come to see Jesus, there's a change. It is no longer my hour is not yet come, but my hour is now here. In John chapter 12, at this point, we are six days out, or, or actually maybe a little bit closer, four or five days from the crucifixion. The hour that John has said is not yet here. Jesus now proclaims, it has come. And as we look at that change this morning and look at the hour, I, just, I want you to notice two facts about it. Number one, Jesus says, the hour has come for me to be glorified. The hour has come for Jesus to be glorified. And the way this comes about is really interesting. And at first glance, it looks like it doesn't connect, but it really does. And it comes about, as we are told, that there are a group of Greeks who are going up to worship. Now remember, everything is leading up. This is, this is the Passover feast. Everything is leading up to the Passover feast and what is happening. And here comes some Greeks up to worship. Now remember John 19, right? The religious rulers of the day say, look, the, the world has gone after him. And then verse 20, here comes the world after Jesus. And so we're introduced to this, this contingency who are coming to worship, which means that they recognize that salvation comes from Israel. They recognize that salvation comes from the God that called Israel and set Israel apart. They, they recognize that truth. And they are there to worship. Now, as I said in our prayer, or, or talking about Annie Armstrong, and, and what we saw in the video was we divide ourselves. The world, we divide ourselves. We're, we're white or, or we're not. Uh, we're, we're American or we're not. We're male or we're not. We're female or we're not. There, there's all these divisions. And for the Jewish world, if you were a Jew, that was the division. You were a Jew or you were not. 
And one way of saying that is you are a Greek or you are a Gentile. They, they mean the same thing. So it's Jews and then it's everybody else. And here come these Greeks up to worship. They want to worship Yahweh. They recognize that Yahweh is salvation. They come up to worship. And then all of a sudden, we get this conversation where they approach Philip and say, Hey, Philip, we wish to see Jesus. We, 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 we wish to see Jesus. Now, this is one of those times where what we read, there is more in the original language. It's not just a one-time request. They're doing this over and over. Hey, Philip, can we see Jesus? Hey, Philip, we want to see Jesus. Phil, 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 Philip, Jesus. We, we want to see Jesus. And it's also a little bit different with the word see. Mark this down. The first and not the last granddaughter illustration. <laughs> so last Monday... When we were in the waiting room waiting for Lucy to be born, I was just sitting there. You know, you, you've got that, you got to mark that time in between where she's born and she's fine and you're waiting to, to go see, see Lucy, right? And I'm sitting in the, the waiting room. I'm like, I want to see Lucy. Now, do I mean when I say I want to see Lucy that I just want to walk into the room, put my eyes on her and walk out, right? We, we know that that's not true. There's going to be a lot of loving and, and, and holding and, and competition and, and all that good stuff, right? I know it's not new for y'all. It's new for me. I, got, I just got to get it out of my system, okay? But we understand that. And, and, and the same thing is, is, is going on here. They don't want to just see Jesus. They probably have already seen him with his eyes. They want to talk to Jesus. It, it's not quite an interrogation, that's, that's, that's a little too strong, but they, they have some questions. They, they got some things they want to ask him. They want a private meeting with Jesus. Now, let's ask a really interesting question. Why? Well, it, he's, he's Jesus. What, you want to talk to him? Yes. Why, why here? Why, why now? Why do the Greeks want to go and see Jesus. Again, think through this. Where are they? They're in Jerusalem. What's the feast? Passover. Where is all the, where's the, the central location of all the worship of Yahweh and the, and the celebration of the feast? Where is it? The temple. How far can they go into the temple? Not very they can only get into the courtyard of the Gentiles, right? What's in the court of the Gentiles? What is in the courtyard of the Gentiles? A market, right? We read about this in John chapter 2 where Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple. I really believe that there are two different cleansings of the temple. I believe there's one at the beginning of Jesus' ministry recorded in John 2, and then there's the cleansing that's recorded at the end of the synoptics. These Gentiles have come up to worship because they believe salvation comes from Yahweh. They have come up to worship, and they can't because the courtyard has been transfixed into basically a flea market. And what happened in the court of the Gentiles? This, this Jesus person shows up, drives the money changers out, overturns their tables, drives out the animals, 
You have made my father's house, one that was built for a place of worship, you have made it a den of robbers. To such a great extent that the Greeks and the Gentiles who have come to worship because what was Israel's, why is Israel set apart? To proclaim, proclaim salvation to the world. Here are the Greeks and the Gentiles coming, recognizing salvation comes from Yahweh. We're here to worship. And the religious people of the day who are supposed to be spreading the gospel have put all kinds of barriers in front of the Greeks and the Gentiles and anybody outside the covenant community to worship. And on the scene comes Jesus, and he turns over everything, drives them out. And all of a sudden, the Greeks, they, they hear about it. And now they're thinking, okay, what does this mean for us? You say that you're sent by the Father. You say that you've claimed, you claim to speak for the Father. You're the Messiah. What does this mean for us? Because up until now, you know what that wall signified to them? The fact that they could only go so far? That wall said, you're inferior. You're inferior. You don't get to approach God like we do. So you just, you just, you stay back there. We'll take care of this. And now they're beginning to wonder, hey, are we really that inferior? Are we inferior before God or has our status changed because this Jesus who showed up claiming to be the Messiah has now driven everybody out? So they want to talk to Jesus. That'd be an important deal, wouldn't it? Now, finally, you know, Philip doesn't know what to do. Right? You ever been that person? You don't know what to do, so you go get somebody else hoping they know what to do. So it goes and gets Andrew. Andrew, we see Andrew going to Jesus. We see Andrew taking people to Jesus over and over and over. So Andrew says, well, let's go talk to Jesus. So Andrew and Philip go and they get Jesus. And when you look down here and you look in verse 23, right? Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And you come to verse 23 and Jesus answered them. And this is what we expect. Philip. Do not hinder the Greeks from coming to me. I would like to talk to them. Right? Because we've seen that over and over in the gospel. So-and-so wants to come see Jesus. Don't keep them from coming to me. I'll come. Je Jesus, the children are coming. Don't, 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 don't hit, uh, you know, prohibit the little children from coming to me. We keep seeing Jesus saying, yeah, come to me. And all of a sudden, we get this in verse 23. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Huh? And in fact, where it says, and Jesus answered them, we're not really sure who he's talking to. He could be talking to Philip and Andrew. He could be talking to Philip, Andrew, and the Greeks. He could be talking to whoever is listening. We don't know who Jesus is addressing. But what we don't see is Jesus saying to Philip and Andrew, hey, bring them to me. I'm going to have an audience with them. I'm going to talk to them. Instead, he says to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, in John's gospel, and we keep, we, you've heard me say this, John's gospel, the glorification of Jesus is the cross. And all that that encompasses, death, burial, and resurrection, that is his glorification. And he says, the hour is now here for me to be glorified. And then in verse 24, and if you're keeping count, this is number 17 of the 25 truly, truly statements. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus uses a metaphor, you know, a farming metaphor that everybody back then would have understood. Right? You understand this. You, you know this. You take it. How many has already got the tomato seeds out? Okay. Right? You take that tomato seed and you just put it on your table. You know what you have in six months? You got a tomato seed. Right? You put the tomato seed in the ground, the seed sprouts, and you got tomatoes. You got a bunch. One seed, a bunch of tomatoes. We, we, we understand this. And immediately we're going to think, all right, yeah, Jesus is going to die. It, it, this, this is how we think. Jesus is going to die, and from his death, burial, and resurrection, it's going to lead to fruit. It's going to lead to people coming to know him as Lord and Savior. It's going to lead to, to us and the church and, and believers. And, and, and yes, that, that, is, that is true. But when you read that verse, the, the, was there another word in there that seemed odd to you? Was, was there a, verse, a word in there that just seems odd? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. That's weird. You ever thought about a seed remaining alone? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's not something that we think of. What in the world? Huh? What, what could that possibly mean? How many of you know John 3.16? All right, trick question. Let's see how well you know it. All right. For God so loved the world that He gave His only... Okay, let me try it again using King James. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, okay, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Galatians 4. I mean, the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from his slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under a law, to redeem those who were under law so that we might receive adoptions as sons, because you are Sons, God has spit the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir to God. When Jesus says that unless he falls into the ground, meaning he dies and is buried, he remains alone, what we see here is the truth that to the glory of the Son and to the glory of God, we are going to be brought into the kingdom as adoptive sons of Christ. So that Christ is not going to be alone. But we are brought into the kingdom to fellowship with Him. Otherwise, He remains what? The only begotten Son. It is through his death, burial, and resurrection. It is through his glorification where he says, my hour has come that I die so that I will not be alone. You will be with me as adoptive sons, as joint heirs in the kingdom forever and ever. And that's important for us. Right? This story looks a lot, this story really looks disjointed when you first read it. 
There's Greeks worshiping. Jesus doesn't talk to them. The hour has come, and Jesus is going to be alone unless he dies. However, it's not disjointed at all. When Jesus says that my hour has come, it means that the arrival of of the Greeks trigger his hour, and his hour is absolutely necessary, or else for the Greeks and for everyone else, and even for the Jews, we're not the adoptive sons. If Jesus isn't glorified, we don't get adopted. If Jesus isn't glorified, we don't get to be heirs with him. Because it's not Jesus cleansing the temple that grants us access to God. It's not Jesus removing our inferior status that grants us access to God. What grants us access to be the covenant people and being the part of the covenant people, being adopted as sons and as heirs and in the covenant as new covenant people is Jesus' glorification. So the, the, the hour that comes where Jesus is glorified is really the, the climax of what we saw in John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world, they sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but through Him that the world may have life. And it all has to do with Jesus' glorification. If He's not glorified then we're not saved. We're not adopted. And at this point, when he makes that comment, it shows now that Jesus no longer belongs just to the Jewish system, that Jesus belongs, as we saw in John 3, to the world, to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, to us, to all the people that were mentioned in the Annie Armstrong video this morning so that whoever comes to Jesus, so that all peoples come to Jesus can be saved. And it's all because he's glorified. And Jesus says, that begins right now. But then secondly, Jesus says, his hour has come that his mission to be fulfilled. The hour has come for Jesus' mission to be fulfilled. Jesus continues to teach. He's continuing to talk. And this is, this is the last public teaching of, of Genesis, uh, excuse me, not of Genesis, of Jesus. After this, it's, it's with his disciples. So Jesus continues to, to, to teach, and he kind of has this conversation with himself, but for the benefit of everybody else. He says, my soul is, is troubled, and that word troubled means like the... the Water after you throw a pebble and it just kind of it's troubled, it's rippled, and you see his humanity in that sentence because he knows what waits for him. He knows what it means that the hour has come. He knows that his glorification is at the point of nails and a wooden cross. So it troubles his soul. But then he's asked this rhetorical question: What shall I say, Father? Save me from from this hour? And the answer is absolutely not. Right? He's not going to be saved from this hour because this is why he came. This, this, this is the purpose. And he is going to see the mission fulfilled all the way to the end. And in that hour, it will bring glory to God. It will bring glory to Christ. It's going to bring glory to God. So Jesus prays, glorify your name. And the Father says, I have glorified it. And I will continue to do that. 
And this is God's way of affirming, again, the ministry of Jesus so those who hear can, can understand that in just a few days when Jesus is hanging on the tree, Jesus is actually being glorified. The Father is being glorified. And for the world, while it's going to look like defeat, it's going to be a fulfillment. Jesus fulfilling the mission. And he tells us very clearly what happens when he fulfills the mission. It says that the world is judged in verse 31. Right? And he's not talking about final judgment. He's talking about right now the world is judged. The world in open rebellion to God. The world that throughout John's gospel has been casting judgment on him. Right? Give glory to God. This man is a sinner. Right? That's a judgment on Jesus. The righteous God being called a sinner. The world judges Jesus. And in judging Jesus, they also judge the Father because the world's judgment of Jesus finds Him lacking. So if Jesus is lacking, then the one who's sending the Father obviously is lacking as well. And so if Jesus is lacking, the Father is lacking, then the mission is lacking also. And because of that, because they judged Jesus and found Him wanting, the Father found Him wanting, the mission found Him wanting, the ultimate judgment of Jesus is nailing Him to the cross. And there's great irony there. Because the cross, in effect, does not judge Jesus. Jesus judges the world by the cross. Positively meaning that Jesus has made sin for us so that we may be made the righteousness of God. Negatively, the world has killed its only hope. I mean, what, what, what's left? If the sacrificial system is not good enough, if Jesus who was sent by God in His mission is not good enough, What's left? Oh, I think I'll take care of it and do it myself. How? <laughs> you can't possibly do it. So if you reject the one graciously, merciful, loving God who sent Jesus, if you reject Him, reject the Messiah, reject the mission, there's no hope. You stand judged. Then Jesus says the ruler of the world is defeated. Now, we know that this is Satan. We look around ourselves, and this is one of those times where we look around and we go, is he? <laughs> right? Every news story this past week says no, <laughs> that the ruler of this world is not defeated. And, and this is a case, again, where the future is, is spoken in terms of the present. Right? It, it doesn't look like victory. Hanging on a tree, nailed to a cross, does not look like victory. It looks like defeat. Yet at the cross, we are confidently assured us that Jesus' glorification, Satan, and his kingdom is destroyed. It, 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 it is. And this is one of those trite pastor things where we go, well, we've read the end of the book. But we've read the end of the book. <laughs> Right? Part of, you know, part of studying through the gospel sometimes is to forget what you already know. Right? But Jesus is telling, telling everybody who is listening, look, you're going to think that in that moment Satan wins, but in that moment Satan loses. The cross assures us that evil has been condemned once and for all. Does it still have power to inflict pain on us? Yes. Does it still have power to even kill us? Yes. But we do not fret, we do not get worried because the fate of the prince of this world has already been sealed. And Satan's fate and what has been sealed for him is far worse 
than anything that we could possibly imagine. And his fate, his eternal destiny was sealed right here at the cross. And in doing so, even though that right now it says that he is the ruler of the world, which would imply that he has kingdoms. If you're a ruler, you have kingdoms. The cross assures us that one day that the kingdoms that Satan has becomes the kingdoms of God. That Jesus will be the one true God who rules over all the kingdoms forever and ever. Then Jesus tells us that he's going to be exalted. He says he's going to be lifted up. And once again, two different meanings for John. One literal, right? He's nailed to the cross and the cross is, is, is lifted up. So there is the literal understanding. We, we've seen the images. We understand this. But the second is that to be exalted means to be lifted up above everybody else so people can see you and recognize your status as being exalted, right? All the upsets this weekend in March Madness. How many people were picked up and held up for everybody else to see? Right? We, we, you pick up the player that hit the three-point shot above everybody else, and it's, you're, you're not thinking that in this moment, hey, I'm going to exalt him by picking him up. But that's what you're doing. You're exalting him above all the other players because he's the one that hit the three-point shot. King Charles, when he's inaugurated or, or crowned king, he's going to sit on a, a platform above everybody else. He's going to be lifted up so everybody can see his exalted status. And recognize that he is king. And that is what Jesus is saying right here. When he is lifted up, he is going to be exalted. And he is exalted on the cross. And I found this, this, this great quote from a, a, a pastor from, from hundreds of years ago. It says, quote, The cross is a throne. His crucifixion is his coronation. He reigns from the tree. His being glorified is not a reward or recompense for his crucifixion. It exists in his crucifixion. I read that. I was like, man, I've never thought about that. Right? He's he's not glorified because he went to the cross. Yes, he is glorified because he went to the cross. And he will be glorified. But we tend to think of it as cross, then glorification. And if we understand it correctly, what we understand is... His glorification exists while he is hanging on the cross. In his bloody, scarred, nailed image, Jesus is glorified. He is exalted. He he is the king. As we know that they will proclaim later, not knowing what they're doing, this is the king of the Jews. Jesus says, fulfillment of my mission, I will be exalted. But then... We're told that the cross will draw all people. Draws all people. Again, Jesus' death is not just for the Jewish people. It's for the world. It's for the Greeks that we got introduced in verse 20. It's for the Gentiles. It's, it's, it's for me. It's, it's, it's for you. Because it says that he will draw all people to himself. Even though their question is not recorded, this is their answer. Because they want to know, Jesus, are, are you who you say you are? 
Does this mean that we have access to God? Does this mean that we, that we are no longer inferior? Does this mean that the wall is broken down? And this is Jesus saying, yes, because when I am lifted up, I will draw all men. I will draw you to myself. You know, we don't need to have the question because Jesus knows the heart of every man. And he answers their question. When I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw you to myself. And not, only, not just for you, but for every tribe, every tongue, every ethnos, every people group, every tongue, you, you name it. The cross is for them. And it is through the cross and only through the cross that people from all those groups can be saved. All right, again, what divides us this morning? So much. We, we are so different in so many different ways. And, and, and we glorify God in our differences and in in, 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 in those distinctions of who we are. But when we walk through that door or that door, however, all those distinctions are put aside because Jesus drew us to himself and put us in Christ. And now that we are in Christ, we are unified around who Christ is. We are what? One in Christ. Because there's one faith and one salvation, and one baptism, and one Lord, and one church. We are one. And it happens right here where the hour switches. Where God steps out of heaven in the person of Jesus, goes to the cross, loves us enough to die on the cross for our sins, so that through His death we may have life. And through his death, his kingdom flourishes as it draws everyone who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. Jesus says, I'm going to fulfill the mission. I'm, I'm going to fulfill it. And he tells this to the crowd, and the crowd just does one of those crowd things, right? Crowds act really weird, right? Look at their question. And it's one of those where you can almost hear it, right? We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up, right? He's like, we know this. You're teaching contrary to what we know. I mean, they just miss the entire thing, don't they? Miss the entire point. Now, again, we might have a quick expectation of how Jesus is, is, is going to respond based on what we know from Luke on the road to this, uh, Emmaus, right, with the disciples? Maybe the next sentence is Jesus going, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, how the Son of Man must be lifted up and die, right? Again, we don't get that. That's not what Jesus does. Instead, he puts a choice before them. He says, look, here, here, here's the choice. And it's a choice that we saw all the way back in John 1. There is a kingdom of light and there is a kingdom of darkness. Jesus is the light. His kingdom is defined by light. His people are defined by people who walk in the light. And the opposite of that is the kingdom of darkness. One is separation. One, one as, as death. So Jesus again ignores the question and says to them, Look, are you going to remain and die in the dark or are you going to come to the light and have life. What are you going to do? Are you going to rest on what you think you know or what I am telling you? Because I have to fulfill my mission, and when I do, you are going to be able to come to me and walk in the light. 
And so Jesus looks at them and issues an invitation. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Look, I'm going to be glorified so that I can draw you into my kingdom. Come into my kingdom. Get out of the darkness so that you can have life, not only here and now, but life for all eternity. And all this starts because the hour has come where Jesus says it is now time for me to fulfill the mission, for me to be glorified and secure salvation for the world. And one of the great truths about his hour is it never ends. That's why we're here today. That's why we're in the kingdom. Because his hour didn't end. His hour was, it is, and will be for all eternity. And he just says to everybody who listens, come to the kingdom of light. Come and have life. Come and have life in you. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.